Welcome back to Your Province, Your Premier. This is the first show since mid-April prior to the provincial election campaign. I'm Wayne Nelson, your host and moderator, and every other Saturday morning during the summer, starting today, I'll be speaking with Premier Danielle Smith about a few of the issues of the day, but as I mentioned on previous shows, this is really your opportunity to speak with the Premier directly, to Ask your questions, voice your concerns, whatever's on your mind. You can speak to the Premier one-on-one. Just keep it short and respectful. The uh, phone lines and the text lines are, uh, well, the phone lines are full already. Uh, and and the text lines uh, are increasing. Those numbers in Calgary, 403-974-8255. At Edmonton, 780-496-0063. Premier Smith. The title remains. <laughs> I'm so glad. I'm so glad to be back, Wayne. I wasn't sure it would be, but it's so nice to be able to be here with you and your listeners. Well, congratulations on your election victory. As with any hard-fought campaign, though, it did come with a cost. Battles were lost. There were definitely some casualties, but the party prevailed, and you won a majority government. Now, in sports, a win is a win. So you have to be pleased with that. But nevertheless, the UCP victory was a slim majority in the province, as it now seems to have embraced this transition to a two-party system. Well, I, you know, the way I look at it is there's a lot of there's a lot of elections where people would be pretty pleased to get 53% of the vote. That to me is a clear mandate. The majority of Albertans are with us on our message. Uh, we certainly got sent a message in Calgary that we have to be a bit more mindful of some of the issues that, uh, that have caused a bit more of a division. I think that it was a 49% to 48% split in Calgary. So we've got some work to do there uh, certainly, but I would say that uh, this is, this is going to be the new reality. As long as we have a, a two party system, we're going to continue to have very, very competitive contest, and it means that we've got to be responsive well, to, uh, a, to what we hear from Albertans. As a native Albertan, this this polarization has me a bit concerned. I mean, first, it is that overall that me versus you or my way or the highway style of political belief that really seems to leave no room for middle ground. People are less willing to compromise these days. There's that urban-rural divide. Well, technically, it's really... Calgary, as you mentioned, almost a 50-50 split. Edmonton, all NDP, and everybody else, UCP. So there's that and the consolidation of the left to the degree that the NDP is now the strongest opposition in the history of Alberta politics. So that has got to put you uh, on a on a much tighter rope, I suppose, if I could use that word. You, there's little room for error because you have to appeal and appease a lot of those people who didn't vote for your party. It's very true. We have to govern for all Albertans. What I would say is I think a lot of votes turned on two things that people are going to find out simply were not true. Um, we heard a lot at the doors that the NDP were telling people we'd make people pay for a family doctor. That's not going to happen. No government will ever do that. We've committed to the principles of the Canada Health Act, and I've signed a $24 billion deal with the federal government. So when people see that that is, is, is false, then I, I think that that will ease a lot of concerns. And the NDP were also telling people that we were going to steal their pensions, which is ludicrous. I mean, we have had a robust discussion about whether there, there should be an Alberta pension plan, but people need to know the law. The law says under our constitution, you, you can't change our pension uh, without uh, making sure that you've got a, equal or better benefits. And so... 
we've committed to doing the work and showing people what that would look like. And then it will be up to Albertans to decide. But I, I think that people will have a level of comfort when they see that we're simply not going to do the things that the, the NDPs tried to scare people with. And I, I think that, that people are going to be very confident with the kind of platform that we've put forward and the people who are sitting at the cabinet table. Now, speaking of that, you announced the new cabinet yesterday, 25 members, just too shy of pre-election. It's quite literally half the size of your caucus. Could it have been smaller? And diversity is still a bit of a challenge as well. You know what? I, I have an ambitious agenda. And and so I want to make sure that every, that I have the right cabinet ministers in the right place doing the right thing. One of the things that we most definitely got elected on was keeping jobs, economy, and trade strong and robust. And so if you look at the way I've structured the ministries, there are a couple of ministries that never really had the attention in the past that they deserved. Forestry always got sort of crammed in to another ministry. Well, it's a standalone ministry, and I think our, our minister, Todd Lowen, has do a tremendous job there. We, we've also decided to, that tourism also needs to have a special focus. And so we've got tourism and sport as a special, as a special ministry. And this time around, uh, I also w- went to a wonderful event in Calgary, a contemporary Calgary, with, the, with the, uh, the, the new modern art gallery. And it's an amazing experience. And our arts communities in both Calgary and Edmonton need to also be, be able to be aware of what their point of access is. So I, I believe that having a minister dedicated to a particular person Purpose is really going to give those stakeholders what they need. So I, I think people should be pretty confident that we're, we're going to be able to move forward on, on a lot of the things they care about. All right. Now I've got a whole slew of questions, which I'm not going to get to because this show is about our callers, about our listeners. I do have one thing that I want to ask before we go to those phone and text lines. Promises were made during the election campaign. Now, I'm wondering if people have become so jaded that they no longer put any stock in any promises by any politicians that they believe politicians will say just about anything to get elected. So how many promises on your do list do you intend to keep? But more importantly, will you actually keep? Because keep in mind that old saying, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Well, let me tell you the ones we campaigned on. We said that we were going to pass Bill 1 which confirms that no personal income taxes or business income taxes will the rate can't go up without a referendum, similar to the kind of law that we have right now for sales tax. We're going to do that. We've also given a public health care guarantee. No one's going to pay for a family doctor. We're going to do that. We've got a number of different credits and uh, promises around taxes that we'll, uh, we'll debate as we bring forward the, the budget in the, in the spring. It might be a timing issue. I mean, we have to also be mindful that people voted for us because we balanced the budget and they want to see us balance the budget and uh, it going forward. So a uh, personal income tax rate down to 8%. The graduation tax credit, the retention bonus. There may be a timing issue on that, depending on what happens with oil and gas prices. But we'll, by the time we're done our mandate, absolutely we'll be implementing those as well. Um, and uh, I, I mean, those were the, the main ones. But we're also going to be building out our primary care system. We know we need to continue the great work on on healthcare reform. And uh, if we need more affordability measures in place, the, we're going to be working on those as well. I mean, we wanted to run on a small number of very precise things, making sure that we were keeping the economy rolling, continue with the diversification, continue attracting businesses here, make sure that we didn't raise corporate income taxes and scare a lot of that investment away. And so I think people will be pretty surprised, well, pretty happy to see that we're we're actually going to keep the promises that we campaigned on. All right. Now, you mentioned affordability and we're going to go to the phones. Ernest has been hanging on for 27 minutes. Now, you'll know we're only 11 minutes into the show. So Ernest has been holding on for a long time. Ernest is calling from Ed 
Edmonton on that very subject of affordability payments. So, Ernest, go ahead. You're on with Premier Danielle Smith. Good morning, Premier Smith. I am so happy to be the first person to congratulate you on a hard-fought but a very classy win on your part. So congratulations. Thanks, Ernest. And once people get to know you, once people, nobody knew who you, so many people were getting so many mixed messages. Once people get to know you and see how you're going to govern, the way I know you're going to govern, then next year it will be a much larger majority. Now, my other, my other question I had, the only question I had for you today is will you continue with the affordability payments and seeing as how our buddy Trudeau is upping the cost to 60 cents a liter in a couple of weeks for gas and for and everything else for our utilities, everything, can you maybe bump it up maybe 50 bucks? Um, just uh, I'm a senior, and you know that 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 check is actually comes in handy once a month. But once again, I'll listen to your answer on the radio. And once again, congratulations and. Uh, I hope next year, or in four years, I'll be the first to congratulate you again. Thanks for the call, awesome. Ernest. Thank you so much for that, Ernest. Well, the, the affordability payments were scheduled to go to the end of June, and I have to bring my cabinet together to discuss what our current financial situation looks like. I mean, everybody knows that uh, the oil and gas revenues are down, and when oil and gas revenues are down, it also means that uh, the cost that you pay at the pump goes down. We committed as well to making sure that we extend that that fuel tax payment until the end of the or fuel tax rebate until the end of the year. Treasury Board has some work to do on that, um, and uh, once they've debated that, that uh, that'll be um, a decision that'll be announced very shortly. We also campaigned on the eight percent rate because we know that if we create this new lower rate of eight percent for personal income tax. That gives every family $760 um, uh, as an individual. It gives $1,520 for a couple. And that, I think, is a way for us to give broad-based relief across the board. We want to make sure that uh, we're implementing it in a way that won't compromise our ability to run a balanced budget. But but you should expect to see that, the, that that's the next thing that'll, that we'll be hoping to, to bring through in the next budget. All right. We're going to pause for a break. I'm Wayne Nelson. I'll be back with Premier Danielle Smith. More of your calls and texts when we return on Your Province, Your Premier. If you're just joining us today, you are indeed listening to Your Province, Your Premier. It will be heard every other Saturday morning during the summer for listeners throughout Alberta in Edmonton on 630 Chad and here in Calgary on QR. Calgary, this is your opportunity to be heard by Premier Danielle Smith. All right, let's uh, not waste time. Let's go right to the phones and uh, Dr. Blay is calling from Edmonton regarding the shortage of family doctors. Uh, go ahead, Dr. Blay, you're on with Premier Danielle Smith. Oh, hi, Premier Smith. Uh, thank you very much for taking my call. What I'm calling you about today is about uh, the shortage of family physicians and I'd like to address it on the basis of the healthy Albertans and the need to have a family physician. Um, now the election's over, it appears that the politicians are maybe talking, uh, stop talking about the shortness of family physicians for Albertans. And I don't want them to forget about this for the concerning problem for Albertans. It's uh, well known that adding a family physician to your population improves your health on, uh, outcomes. There's a well-written article, Value of Family Medicine, Impossible Job, Done Impossibly Well, in the Family Medicine uh, Journal. Um, I've written to Dr. Fred Rinaldi, who's actually a family physician, who's the head of AMA, and Dr. Noel uh, DeCuna, who is also the um, uh, Alberta family physician um, president. 
And I just, my concern was is that we're trying to address the lack of uh, students and um, residents coming to practice family medicine in Alberta. And the other option is there's two parts to that. There's people who are becoming family physicians in Alberta, and there's also ones that are retiring or leaving or uh, ending at an earlier date. And I think that hasn't been addressed. Um, the, um, so these are important things that need to be looked at. One of the things that I feel is uh, that you're seeing um, partially with the, the lack of family physicians uh, uh, wanting to, or people with the, wanting to train and come to Alberta is there's still the layover about respect for a family physician in Alberta. All right, but lots of uh, lots of good questions there, Dr. Blay. Can I just the last part is that, so I think there's two parts to it. I think they should, you guys should also address the other end where there's bleeding out of the family physicians that are retiring early and for other reasons. And um, sorry, I'll leave it at that and um, see your comments. Yeah, great. No, well, here's the thing. You, I don't know how many of your listeners listened to the debate, but we were asked what of the others platform we agree with. And you'll find that both us and the NDP agree that we've got to create team practices for family practice. I, I think that the model where you had a, a single doctor at the helm of a of a family practice seeing 1,500 patients on their roster. I, I think that the expectations have changed. I, I have to look at what doctors want as well. And a lot of docs want to be able to specialize and be able to do uh, work in hospital and uh, be able to work in a team practice. And so I think that what you'll see is we've laid the groundwork for that. Our, our new contract with the AMA has 25% as a target for doctors to be on an alternative payments math model that would allow them to bring in nurse practitioners and LPNs and dietitians and nutritionists. So that's that's one thing that we're going to work towards. We, we also have to uh, recognize credentials. We, we've done a terrific job already on this with recognizing foreign credentials for, doctor, for nurses who are trained, trained elsewhere. I think uh, Karna has already... Uh, affirmed more than 2,000 nurses since April 4th, since we made that change. We've got to do the same thing with doctors. And we are starting to train more. So we have created new spaces in Calgary and Edmonton, as well as have a training in rural Alberta, so that uh, docs and other health professionals can be trained where they're ultimately going to end up working. And we have open more residency spaces. Now, as you know, doctors take a long time from the beginning of the process to train, at least eight years, sometimes longer. But everybody is committed to making sure that we get that team practice. I've seen it firsthand. If people don't have a family doctor and a child gets an earache or a sore throat and you can't go to a walk-in clinic, the, the only place to go is an emergency room in the evenings and on weekends. And it's part of the reason our emergency is so overwhelmed. So I think with a team practice approach, we'll be able to get longer hours, more practitioners in those um, those types of environments, and we'll have a, a really robust system. And I'm glad to see that that, that we're in, in perfect sync on that with the official opposition. Dr. Blade did make a good point on the attrition aspect. Uh, I myself have gone through gone through uh, three family doctors uh, who have all retired. I keep picking younger ones, hoping that they'll last, but that just doesn't seem to be the case. Uh, a text texter said, currently we have 5,600 GPs in Alberta, which is 780 patients per GP. What ratio do you hope to achieve? 
Well, and I, and that's the thing. In the past, I remember uh, talking to docs telling me that 1,000 to 1,500 patients was a, a usual race, patient roster. I think it's actually lower than that now. But we, we've got to we've got to do some of the, st- of the analysis to find out how many primary care practitioners there are, how many patients they want to have, how they might be able to expand the number of patients they see if we start adding in team practice. And I think as we as we build that system out, our goal is is the same as Albertans' goal. Every single person needs to have access to a GP. And that's what we hope to be able to achieve over the next four years. All right. One more question on the text line regarding health care. Uh, when were Dynalabs or Dynalife given AHS contract and are they saving us any money and is it worth it? The texter says, I rarely use the service. Everybody I talk to waits at, waits at least two months for an appointment just to have blood work drawn. Uh, you get there early and then sit and wait another 45 minutes to have it done in a clinic with no walk-ins. Can you please reconsider and go back to Alberta Precision's labs, which did a better job? Uh, I'm, I'm hearing that all over, uh, that Dynalife has has not met performance expectations. Now, I, I haven't had a, a chance to talk to our official administrator about that in particular, because during an election, it's not really appropriate for uh, any politicians to be interfering um, or asking those kinds of questions until we know who's, who's won. But I, I can tell you, I have a regular time that I, I talked to the official administrator to find out how things are going. And Dynalife is one that I know that he and Moro Kias were working on. Remember, our, our CEO of Alberta Health Services, Moro Kias, comes from the lab tech world. So he understands how that system works. So last time we talked about it, they were working with Alberta, the personnel from Alberta Precision Labs to increase the amount of personnel, increase the amount of tests, but I'm still hearing problems. So it's a work, it's, it's work that we have to continue doing and we have performance expectations in that contract. So Dynalife is going to be expected to meet those performance um, expectations. And, and so I'll, and if they I have don't? to do a check-in on it. Well, that's just it. If they, if they don't, then we can make other, other arrangements to be able to bring in additional personnel to be able to make sure that we meet those expectations. I, I hope we don't have to, to go to that level. But they need to they need to perform as right. we've expected them to. All right, Chris is calling in from Edmonton. Lots of calls uh, today from Edmonton. Uh, we still have to hear from Calgary, but let's hear from Chris in Edmonton. He has a question about city projects. Go ahead, Chris. Oh, uh, good morning and congratulations, uh, Madam Premier. Thanks, Chris. Um, Anthony uh, Fury, uh, Toronto mayoralty candidate was proposing a freeze on the hiring for non-core services and doing value-for-money audits of the uh, Toronto books. And he he said that uh, one-third of bureaucrats in Toronto were on the sunshine list, that is, making more than $100,000 a year. I'm asking whether you would consider amending the Municipal Government Act to put some handcuffs on our uh, city bureaucracies, in particular Edmonton, so that they spend our tax dollars on performing core services well instead of special interests and pet projects and non-core services and put a freeze on hiring non-core service bureaucrats. Um, and this is, you know, this, this is something I know you've addressed previously, but if there's something that really um, disturbs uh, Edmontonians, uh, it's to see their uh, city bureaucrats spending money on $100 million on bike lanes and, um, it, you know, ignoring what should be uh, performing core services well. So I'd, I'd like you to consider 
bringing in some handcuffs on municipalities, please. Thanks for the question and the observations. And I hear those frustrations. Here's what I would say. We, we have a very skilled and competent municipal affairs minister that has just been appointed in Rick McIver. He knows exactly how the Calgary administration runs because he was there a long time. And I think that also gives him some insight into how other municipalities run, particularly uh, the large ones like, like Edmonton as well. I will talk to him about the kind of things that we want to put in place because we've got to have the municipal governments operating in sync with our provincial government. And one thing that I think we can do Um, And this comes from St. Albert. Let me just give them a shout out to them. They have already set performance targets that they want to be able to get a business license issued on the same day, a development permit with, with issued within three days and building permits issued within three weeks. So I've already talked to my red tape minister saying, you know what, if, if there is one large municipality that can meet those targets, we should be asking all municipalities to reach those targets. Because look, we've got a, we've got a, a housing crisis and a rental crisis. And we, we know the only way to address that is to build more homes and to, and to build more apartments. And that, to me, is core business of government. We've got to clear away the red tape. So those are the kind of things that I am focused on doing. And this is the reason elections matter, is that when you, when you, when you elect a group of people with uh, certain plans, then they get four years to be able to implement them. And so if, if there are some frustrations, then the election is going to be about two and a half years away, that, that would probably be the way to deal with some of those. But we can hold the, um, the municipalities to a, to a standard when it comes to creating an environment that will attract businesses. And so we're, we're going to be focusing on those things. All right. Justin is calling in from Edmonton on one of the other big topics during the election campaign, and that is education. Go ahead, Justin. You're on with Premier Danielle Smith. Good morning, Premier Smith. And Hi, Justin. Cabinet. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, my question is, um, my question is, I'd like to congratulate uh, Demetrius Nicolades on becoming our new Minister of Education. He did a lot of good work in the post-secondary in reducing our costs and be while and strengthening free speech protections. So what are you going to do to ensure that best mandate continues so that way free speech is also protected in K-12 and so that way parental rights are also protected? Thanks so much for your comments on that, Justin. I mean, I think I think everyone knows that we're, we're striving for a balance here to make sure that uh, parents have a right to choose the kind of education that they want for their kids and that there's lots of options for education. And so we've supported our public schools and our Catholic schools. We've got um, we've got more spending in those areas than than ever before. We've supported charter schools. We've got a charter hub that is going to be developed in in Calgary that that will incubate as many as ten charter schools a year. We've got more charter schools. We've got more independent schools. We've got more people in in homeschooling, and that's going to continue. Uh, and I, I fully expect that uh, that Demetrius Nicolaitis is is going to to make sure that those options and choices r- remain available. That being said. We still have a lot that we have to, to address because of the, the past three years of disruption in the school environment. I know that there are complex needs in classrooms, which is why we came through with additional funding so that school boards could either hire more teachers or education assistants or psychologists to be able to assist with that. We had to give dedicated funding to help deal with the social anxiety and the mental health crisis that we have in schools as well. And I, I want to be mindful of that as we roll out the rest of the curriculum, that we've got to make sure that that um, teachers are able to handle the extra 
uh, the extra pressure of doing that, which is why we've got more dollars to help them with implementation of the curriculum, and that the kids are also in a, a good state where they can where they can learn. So those are the things that we'll be focusing on, and hopefully keep the the school environment normal so that we can get back to normal. All right, John has texted in uh, a photo. Uh, of his PTSD service dog, and it uh, has that bright orange harness on it. John said, why am I still having problems with the Calgary Court Centre with public access for his PTSD service dog? You know what? I would ask John, because I know he's raised this. I think he raised it when I was on the air as well. He and did, he's raised yes. it, And he's raised it in the time that you and I have been on uh, doing these, these phone calls. I have a new justice minister, Mickey Amory, and I would ask John to raise this with with him. Let, he's, he's just getting settled, just getting briefed. Monday, Tuesday is the day that he's going to do it, but he'll hit the ground running next week because I tend to agree, I think especially now that we've seen the great and expansive use of service dogs, it goes beyond helping people with uh, physical disabilities. There are a lot of emotional support dogs. I've seen it in hospice care. I've seen it in schools. I've seen it in hospitals. And I, I understand exactly why uh, why John would, would want to be able to keep um, his uh, his service animal with him because of PTSD. So I think we just need to modernize our approach to how we address these issues. And and I'll uh, I'll, I'll make sure it's on Mickey Marie's radar screen. So, but I would ask John to to contact that office and see if he can start moving the ball forward on it. All right, Derek, calling in from Edmonton. Austerity budget question. Go ahead, Derek. You're on with Premier Danielle Smith. Hi there, Danielle. Uh, I was wondering to know if there's even the possibility that you're going, going to run on an austerity budget. And if so, which programs and services are you going to cut? I would say that our approach is that we, we want to continue to grow. I mean, we, we, have, we had uh, 39 months of consecutive uh, decline in our population. And we have just turned that around. I think we've now had six quarters of, of growth. And when you, more people come here, they bring businesses, they bring investment, they bring tax dollars, they pay personal income tax, which, and, but they also demand services. They need more schools and hospitals and roads. We need to hire more doctors and teachers and nurses. And so I want to keep that that positive cycle going because i i think that uh, that there's i think that alberta is the best place in the in uh, in the country to invest we want to maintain that and you don't do that by by cutting the services that that people need so we want to be responsible and increase at a, a rate that's manageable but we also um, have have promised that we will run balanced budgets. That's what our fiscal framework was all about. We've also promised that we want surpluses so we can pay down the debt. We want to be debt-free once again. We've also started increasing our investment in our Heritage Savings Trust Fund. I want to grow that fund to $300 billion like we see in other investment funds around the world. So we've got a lot of things that we need to balance. Uh, but but uh, do know that my, my caucus is committed to making sure that balanced budgets uh, happen and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll continue to monitor what's happening out there in uh, in the world with with oil and gas prices but i i feel like we're going to continue to attract investment here and that's going to going to allow us to keep up with that growth all right text message in from calgary uh says with your understanding of albertans love of competition free choice free markets and freedom in general and promise of red tape reduction would you consider removing the calgary metropolitan regional board that gives power to the city of calgary to veto any of its eight mandated rural members initiatives i believe your rural members would in particular love to have this non-democratic board removed 
I have more work to do on the uh, Calgary Metropolitan Plan and the the regional board. One, one of the things that I think makes some sense is that where Rocky View County and Foothills County touch the city of Calgary, those particular areas do need to be part of a growth plan. And I think that's reasonable. But remember, um, Rocky View and, and Foothills are really big counties. And we shouldn't be having a situation where that board is able to veto development across the entire planning area. So I want to see if we can be a lot more specific in the zones that need to be subject to, to regional planning. And hopefully that's where we'll find the, the resolution. That, that's what I've committed to looking into. And I, I, we kind of ran out of time in our, our, my, my, my brief seven months in being on the job, but, but it is, it's got my full attention as we, as we move into this next phase. All right. Phone call from Calgary. Tom is calling in with a homeless question. Go ahead, Tom. You're on with Premier Danielle Smith. Uh, thank you. So as everybody knows, most of these homeless people have problems with addiction and mental problems, and most people don't care, but the cost is huge. You know, you've got police, fire, hospitals, it's theft from individuals and companies. So these people are costing us a lot. You should make it a law that it's against the law to be homeless, put them in a place and rehabilitate them as you can, but you need to take them off the streets so they don't hurt themselves and hurt others and aren't a huge cost. What's your thoughts? And Tom, Tom's right. I mean, I, I've seen studies that suggest that just as he was discussing, that if you have addiction and you've got calls of ambulance and you've got hospital visits and you've got incarceration, sometimes individuals like that can cost $100,000 per year. It would make far more sense to be investing at the front end on getting people off their addictions and getting them connected with the services that they need and as well as connected with um, the with a job so that they can live a normal life. Here's our philosophy in our in our government. We we believe that recovery is the norm. Every one of us knows people who had succumbed to addiction who have been able to get well. So let's focus on getting people well. Is why we took the forty dollar per day charge off. That was costing people twelve hundred dollars a month to access an addiction treatment bed. We've also massively expanded our number of treatment beds. We're building recovery communities. The first recovery community in Red Deer started receiving patients just in the month of May. And we've got nine more that are planned in building, including some that are on First Nations. The other thing that we campaigned on is um, having legislative framework for treatment orders so that if somebody is causing harm to themselves or others, they have a choice. You can go to jail for a long time or you can go into treatment. And so we'll be developing the legislative framework to make that happen as well. So, so I agree with Tom. Like vagrancy and public disorder and creating the, the kind of dangerous environments that we now have in many of our public spaces, it shouldn't be tolerated. Public order and public safety is uh, our number one job of government. And so we've, we're going to work on that. You're going to be walking the fine line, though, uh, aren't you, Premier Smith, with forced incarceration or forced treatment? It's, uh, it's going to be done through a judicial process um, that if somebody is causing harm to themselves or others, then that will be the, the choice that they're given, that you can either serve your time in uh, incarceration, and we, we are developing treatment facilities within our corrections facility, or you can go into, into treatment. We, we can't continue to allow people to cause the kind of harm and disorder that we're seeing. We can't have people afraid to take public transit or afraid to go downtown and enjoy a game or have a meal with their loved ones or afraid to have their kids go downtown. That's the situation that a lot of people find themselves in now. And it's not just Calgary and Edmonton, it's many of our mid-sized cities too. Uh, we've seen what happened in Vancouver with a very permissive attitude. They've gone a different pathway. It's been uh, essentially focused on 
consumption sites, as well as what they're calling safe supply. So they're giving taxpayer-funded hydromorphone to addicts, which are finding more and more drugs on the street, given to kids at younger and younger ages. And it's a disaster. We're, we're not going that path. We, we believe that treatment should be uh, front and center and assisting people in getting off their addiction. And, and that's the approach we started. We're four years into an eight-year plan. And the, the next step is, is making sure that there are more options for people to, to get into treatment. All right. Logan has texted in on the 630 Ched line. Uh, he's tagged it, Logan, the professional golfer living in his car for the past year now. He said, will you use the Sovereignty Act to stop the increase in the carbon tax? It's affecting everybody's bottom line. Oh, I'm, I'm in a, we're in a pitched battle with Ottawa. Let's be frank about that. They, they put their tools down to, to not interfere with our election, but I'm already told that they intend to move forward with net zero electricity grid by 2035, which we already know would add $52 billion in cost to our, our power grid. And it would uh, add 40% to the cost of, of power. I mean, everybody knows how painful this past winter season was. Imagine a 40% higher electricity cost that's going to hurt individuals, people on fixed income, and it's also going to hurt businesses. So we can't allow that to happen. Your approach they is also, net zero by 2050. By 2050, absolutely. Yeah. And I've already had a conversation with the prime minister about this. I said, if we can focus on 2050, then that gives us enough time frame so that as technology and as investments need to be renewed, they can be renewed with the best available technology. And we can do it in a in a time frame that allows for technology to solve a lot of this problem without massively escalating costs or creating production caps. The other thing that we're fighting is they want to bring through an emissions cap on oil and natural gas. They've, they've said 42% reduction by 2030. And I've told the prime minister, it's impossible without seeing production shut in. So those are the two big battles that we're having right now. Um, I've already raised this with the Prime Minister that we've got to work together on trying to create an environment where the feds and us are in sync. And I'll be meeting with a couple of his key ministers in the coming weeks. We're also going to be having a Western Premiers Conference as well as the Council of the Federation of all the Premiers. And, and these are the, the issues that we're talking about at the, at the table. We're seeing in, in uh, Atlantic Canada too. I mean, our Atlantic Canadian Premiers are also saying that the, the carbon taxes are, are just are simply causing too much hardship on their people. They're, they're increasing at a rate that is unsustainable. Uh, Premier Scott Moe has also, he's, I'm going to be meeting with him next week and we're going to talk about ways that we can continue the challenge on the carbon tax. So it, is, uh, it, ha it was on pause, but uh, we're going to be going full steam ahead on trying to figure out a way to get rid of that retail carbon tax. Now that you have the mandate from the provincial electorate, do you expect the prime minister to be more willing to listen and act on the emissions cap and carbon tax issues than he was when you had just been, uh, when he had just become leader of the uh, uh, UCP prior to the provincial election? I've been able to work with the federal government on a couple of things. Uh, we managed to uh, get a $24 billion healthcare deal. We are moving forward on $10, uh, aspiration to get to $10 a day daycare with, uh, with federal funding. We, they've been very helpful through the wildfire season, especially with um, um, our, our armed forces. We had four companies of the armed forces, 400 men and women helping us with our firefighting. And so I, I, I can find ways to work with the federal government on things that where we share common interests. And, and that's why I'm trying to get to some common ground on how we approach energy and the environment. Just before the election, we re released our emissions reduction and energy development plan. And so we showed 
the federal government, the way in which we can get to carbon neutrality by 2050. And we've uh, picked up that conversation immediately after me getting elected. I, I don't know that we've won it yet, but but we have to. It's, it's too important. It's too important for us and it's too important for the country. One of the points I made to the prime minister was that they also have an, an aspirational agenda for the things that they want to do for Canadians. And when Alberta does well, we generate a lot of tax revenue that goes to the federal government that allows them to be able to, to do the things they want to do. There is no point for, for anyone in, in stopping the, the kind of uh, wealth creation that we and job creation that we have in this province. So I'm, I'm working on it. It's going to consume a lot of my time over the next few months. All right. We have questions on the Calgary arena, electric cars on the road, more health questions, lots more text messages, but we're going to pause for a break. We'll try to get to, get to everything when we come back. I'm Wayne Nelson with Premier Danielle Smith, we will be back to wrap things up in our final segment on Your Province, Your Premier. Wayne Nelson back with you on Your Province, Your Premier, your opportunity to speak with Premier Danielle Smith one-on-one. -on -one. If you've got a specific question you'd like the Premier to answer, the numbers to phone or text 403-974-8255 in Calgary, 780-496-0063 in Edmonton. All right, before the break, I promised we were going to talk about the Calgary Arena and electric cars. So uh, Jared has the Calgary Arena question. Let me see if you can hit the right button here. Jared, go ahead. You're on with Premier Danielle Smith. Very good morning, Premier. Uh, first and foremost, uh, I'm not a supporter. I'm not a fan. However, congratulations nonetheless. Thank you. Um, I would like you to please explain to the residents of Vegerville, uh, Drumhill or Pincher Creek, um, Wainwright, why you think it is appropriate to force them to pay for infrastructure on the arena deal in Calgary when they have infrastructure issues in their own towns and they're not getting any money for that. I'll hang well, up and listen to your actor. Sure, sure. I disagree with you. Um, we have an $8 billion a year capital plan, which is $24 billion over three years, of which $3 billion go to Calgary and $3 billion goes to Edmonton. So the vast, vast majority of our infrastructure funding goes to cities that are not Calgary and Edmonton, even though Calgary and Edmonton have two-thirds of the population. So uh, we want to get to a point where dollars are returning to the communities so that more communities have more money to pay for their own their own needs. Uh, when it comes to the Calgary Arena deal, this was something that the, the Calgary taxpayers wanted us to, to partner with, or the Calgary Council did. Um, there were a couple of different proposals that were being put forward about how to gentrify downtown. And the one that seemed to make the most sense is for us to invest in helping to um, build these community gathering places, the community arena, put the LRT stations in place, help to build the road expansion and the infrastructure. And those are the things that, that uh, the city of Calgary identified as being important to them. We, we try to be responsive to each city, but I, I think we need to be very clear that uh, the Alberta government spends most of its capital budget outside the cities of Calgary and Edmonton. All right, uh, electric cars. Peter is calling in from Calgary. Go ahead, Peter. Yes, uh, congratulations. I, Thank you. Uh, I, I'm the fellow that sent you the uh, the uh, uh, magazine from uh, uh, Anne Frank, and I'm just wondering if it made it past your uh, handlers, if you actually got it. Um, I'm I I don't know what you're referring to, but I'll take a look for it, Peter. What uh, what the, point did you want to make on that? The, 
that's not what my question was. I was just hoping that it had made it past you. The okay. Diary Anne Frank, and it was at Time Life magazine. Okay. Anyways, um, I through my company, I put fuel in about four, five vehicles. My fuel bill is anywhere from six to eight thousand dollars a month. Now I'm, I'm I'm paying my fair share of road tax, and in the course of a day's work, I get to see a lot of these. Tesla T's in the middle of the trunk lids in front of me and beside me and and uh, you know they've been talking about it being so cheap to drive uh, electric cars I think they deserve the, uh, an equal opportunity to pay road tax and and currently they're not and I'm, I'm just wondering if that isn't something that could be uh, looked at from a government point of view that uh, I don't know maybe their uh, license plate should be worth $5,000 a year hmm. um, <clears throat> or going... there may be other ways of doing it. I don't know, but but they I, I, at some point, if everybody's driving an electric car, where's the road tax going to come from? You're you're very right. I mean, we're in an environment right now where because there've been incentives to try to get more people to move into zero emissions vehicles. We, if you play this out, ten or twenty or thirty years, we, we will get to a point where we've got a lot of roads to pay for. And we don't have fuel taxes to pay for them. So I don't know that we have an answer to that yet. Uh, I, I think in Alberta, what makes sense for us is for us to look at zero emissions vehicles based on hydrogen, because I've, I've received some information that trying to upgrade our power grid and all of the transformers on all the streets to be able to accommodate everybody being able to plug in is going to be onerous. So I, I think that our, our mix of vehicles on the road is going to be a little bit different. And I, I agree with you that everybody should be paying for the road maintenance. And how we do that is going to be a, a matter for my transportation and economic corridors minister to work out. But one of the things we do want to do is start building out that hydrogen infrastructure so that we can start enabling more people to, to switch over to that to that alternative type of vehicle. But uh, it's on my radar. I know, I know it's going to be a future problem, but we, we may as well start having that conversation now. I think one of your supporters on hydrogen uh, has texted in. Uh, the text says, uh, congratulations on your election win. I would like to know your thoughts on the energy regulator issuing alerts about our supply of electricity, the strain on the grid, during these hot days because of no wind. I personally feel the province should never be in this situation. Wind and solar do not have the same potential as hydrogen. Can we do something to boost our supply of energy while the hydrogen technology is being developed? The, it's 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 a an active discussion that we have to have with my new uh, affordability and utilities minister Nathan Newdorf. He um, we know that we have, I think it's five thousand megawatts of installed wind and solar power on our grid. And your your texture is absolutely right. There are days where they're only generating less. You know, we had two days during winter where they were generating less than a hundred megawatts of power. And and so we've got to make sure reliability and affordability are the number one goals of our grid. And so that's what I'm that's what I'm going to be focused on. And and it'll be a very active discussion. Okay, I want to get to our uh, last caller here because we're running out of time. Boy, this show uh, does fly by. Premier Smith, uh, Don has been hanging on for thirty minutes, calling in from Edmonton on a medical system question. Go ahead, Don. You're on with Premier Danielle Smith. Hi, Danielle. Premier Smith. Hi. How's it going? Anyway, um, hey, Don. I'm really sorry that you have to talk to Trudeau, but. I I couldn't do it, but anyway. It's okay, Don. Someone's got to do it. It may as well be me. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, healthcare, um, like we, we already know if you just look at any numbers from around the world that our healthcare system is not working. We have to find 
new innovative ways to get things done faster, quicker. Um, it just like, for example, okay, so United States spends more on healthcare than any other country in the world, but yet they rank 46th on health. Uh, for over, if you're a child born in Africa, your chances of survival are higher than the child born in in America. But the point is, is we have to get rid of the. It's like in 1950, food has lost 70 percent of its nutritional value from 1950 till now. So we have to look at the the different aspect of it. But the one thing that uh, like there, there's a gentleman that trains dogs in um, uh, Winnipeg. People send in dogs from all over the world because they can detect cancer at such an, an early state that it's, it's, it makes the survival rate far more um, uh, Don, better, Don, Don you're, you're all over the map here. Uh, one question, we got about 30 seconds, so uh, what's your question? Okay, what could we do to totally revamp the health care system to make it better to bring our numbers up, to bring us into international standards, to, to do anything better than that's going on right now. I know we're just right. a little tiny province. We're, in, we're not the country. So there's my question. Well, I'm, I'm very encouraged by the progress we were able to make. We talked to nurses, doctors, and paramedics and other health professionals. We found a way to streamline the system so that we could more efficiently reduce the uh, EMS re response time, the hospital wait time, and we're starting to have um, uh, clear our surgical backlog. The next big step is building out the primary care system with a team practice so we've got more practitioners, many who deal with the preventative health embedded in that practice, and also invest in home care and continuing care so we can keep people in their own homes healthfully longer. And those are our two major initiatives that we'll be working on in the next four years. I got a lot of hope. We saw some great progress with AHS, and I know that we're going to be able to make continued great progress. Premier Smith, it has been a pleasure. We've got a, a full board of uh, calls. We've got tons of text. We didn't get around to them, so we'll have to do it again in a couple of weeks, right? Let's do it. Every couple of weeks, Wayne. Looking forward to it. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you on June 24th at Thanks this again. same time. Premier Danielle Smith on Your Province, Your Premier.